Welcome to the second of two episodes on the Pilgrimage of Grace. In the first episode, we talked about what actually caused the Pilgrimage of Grace. We talked about the religious, economic and political upheavals of the 1530s and how that had driven people to the point where they were rebelling against Henry VIII, the king. We pick up the story now with the rebels in control of almost the entirety of the north of England. York, Hull, Beverley, the major cities of the north are under their control. Major landowners have joined this rebellion. This is a serious issue. And so, the king has to send somebody serious. And the man he sends is the Duke of Norfolk. He sends the Duke of Norfolk north to negotiate with the rebels. An important thing to understand about the Duke of Norfolk is that he is the enemy of Thomas Cromwell. He is one of those landed gentry who regard Cromwell as an upstart. And so, when Norfolk goes north, he has two parallel aims. The first one is to put down the rebellion, but the second one is to weaken Cromwell. Weaken Cromwell's actions, reforms, changes, and Cromwell's grip on the king. So how does he do it? Well... On the 27th of October, Norfolk meets the rebels at Doncaster. The Duke has 8,000 men with him. Robert Ask, the leader of the rebels, has 30,000. Norfolk has no intention of fighting. He knows he can't win, even with 8,000 trained men. 30,000 rebels will simply swarm him under. So he talks. He convinces Ask that Norfolk will present his demands to the king. The rebels go away and they take a month to draw up their demands. And those are basically the same as we've talked about before. The only difference is that alongside the original demands that they had of the king, which were that they wanted a restoration of the old ways in religion, the removal of Cromwell and his other advisers, they wanted Anne Boleyn put on trial for witchcraft, they wanted assurance that there would be no taxes on births, deaths and marriages. They wanted the new prayer book of 1535 removed. And they wanted prices reduced on staple goods. Alongside those, the other thing they asked for is a parliament in York. The idea that the North will have a say in the running of the country, not just be dictated to by the new, largely Protestant South. Now, we've been here before a number of times in both the John and Magna Carta case study and in both the Henry III and Simon de Montfort case study, we've had a king who has been presented with a list of written demands. And in both cases, the king has very simply agreed to them and started making military preparations. Henry is not different. He's certainly not stupid. So he plays for time. He agrees to meet with Ask. In fact, he goes slightly further than that. He agrees to invite Ask to come and spend Christmas with him at Greenwich Palace. He also offers to give a pardon to every member of the Pilgrimage of Grace. On the 7th of December, at the insistence of Robert Ask, who was on his way to Greenwich to talk to the king, the rebels disband and they go home. At the exact same time, Henry starts strengthening all the garrisons in the north. Now the 
obvious question at this point is why does Robert believe the king? There are a number of reasons. First, Robert is an intelligent, educated man. He may believe that he can persuade the king. The second is there has to be an element of being starstruck. This is the king. This is Henry VIII. At this point, remember, still a young, good-looking man. He hasn't turned into the fat blimp that we associate with Henry VIII. At this point, he is a rock star. He's a rock god. And he is inviting you to spend Christmas with him at his palace, where there will be feasting and falconry and hunting and games. And, of course, a young provincial lawyer, someone who's done a little bit of business in London, most of his business in York, has maybe caught a glimpse of the king from the very distance. He's going to be starstruck and he's going to want to go. And so he does. In January 1537, some of the rebels, under the leadership of a man called Bigod, attack Hull, Beverley and Scarborough castles. They are convinced that the king does not mean to abide by the promises he's made. They, quite rightly, have seen the strengthening of these garrisons and suspect the king is going to attack them anyway, so they may as well strike first. This, of course, plays directly into Henry's hands because he is able to say, hey, I offered you a pardon and this is how you repay me. I gave you everything you wanted. I've invited your leader here to talk to me and you repay me by attacking my castles. The deal is off. And so, using this as an excuse, he cancels the pardons and he sends Norfolk north with an army to put the rebels down. Norfolk executes somewhere in the region of 74 people. There are a large number of death sentences handed down, but Norfolk doesn't see the point in killing them all simply because, well, they've already been defeated and also because they are the enemies of Cromwell, not necessarily of him or the king. The rebellion is basically over in January 1537. It's gone. So why did it fail? It's gone from 30,000 people marching and seizing the entire north of the country to nothing. There are a number of factors to consider. I would suggest that what you need to be thinking about is that Ask's leadership was spectacularly weak. He was good at organisation. He was good at getting these 30,000 people together, but he was very easily outwitted by the king. Next, the rebels never really had any initiative. They marched around, they had these slogans, and they didn't do anything. Compare the action of the Pilgrimage of Grace to the action of the peasants in the Peasants' Revolt. Which of those is taking the initiative? Which of those is actually going out there and taking events by the scruff of the neck and getting what they want? It's certainly not Ask and his people. I think another thing you have to take into account here is that same thing again that we've seen before. Trusting the King's word. If history teaches us anything in this topic, it is very simply that if you challenge the authority of the king, you have to be willing to go all the way. Because if the king simply agrees to a limit on his power, he doesn't mean it. He's going to come after you and he's going to wreak his vengeance upon you. I think the lesson to take from John, 
Henry III, Richard II, and now Henry VIII, is very simply this. If you are going to challenge the power of the king, you must have the courage of your convictions, and you have to be able to follow it through to its logical conclusion, which is, you're going to have to get rid of the king. Which leads us to the next point, of course. One of the reasons why this fails is Henry simply outthinks and outmaneuvers them. By sending Norfolk up to talk to them, by sending Norfolk up to negotiate with them, he very simply pulls their teeth and he stops them from being able to effectively challenge him militarily, giving him time to build up his military forces over that winter, ready for the strike that's going to come. He's probably expecting the strike's going to come in spring, but as it is, it comes in January. So they fail because of their own weaknesses, but also because of the strength of the people that they're going up against. What then was the impact of the Pilgrimage of Grace? If it's such an abject failure, does it change nothing? Does it have no effect? Well, not quite. First off, it has an effect on Cromwell. Cromwell comes north and he takes a much harder line than the Duke of Norfolk. He has Ask, Darcy and Hussey arrested. Darcy and Hussey are executed in London, in front of all of the other landowners and all of the other major people in the kingdom to see exactly what happens to those people who cross the king and those people who cross Cromwell. Ask was executed in York on the 12th of July, 1537. All of the local landowners were required to come and watch. Again, this is an abject lesson. This is a communication from Cromwell to these other conservative Catholic landowners in the north to say very simply, wind your necks in, do as you're told, or else. In all, there are 216 executions following the Pilgrimage of Grace, including 38 monks and 16 parish priests. As an aside, Henry's daughter, Bloody Mary, has that nickname because of the amount of people she allegedly killed during her reign. Well, yes, she did kill an enormous number of people, but nowhere near the number of people that Henry VIII was responsible for the deaths of. These 216 are only scratching the surface. By the end of his reign, taking England by the scruff of its neck and turning it into a Protestant nation, Henry is wading hip-deep in blood. As a result of the Pilgrimage of Grace, Henry begins this new phase of his kingship, and he begins it by stepping up his campaign against the monasteries. Instead of just the smaller ones, in 1539 he starts dissolving the larger ones. Some monasteries resist their dissolution, but these ones are dealt with, shall we say, firmly. The abbot of Glastonbury, for example, is dragged through the town, hanged and has his head chopped off and put on a spike over the abbey gates. It doesn't really take many abject lessons like those to make the rest of the monks go quietly. Most monastic land is bought up by the landowners. The empty buildings are themselves looted and taken away for building material by the local people. If there is a ruined abbey somewhere near your house, it's very, very interesting to go and look at it. Look at the colour of the bricks, the building material that was used to make those abbeys before the dissolution, and then go have a look around at the local farmhouses and manor houses that still exist, and you'll notice that the colours are very much the same. The long-term consequences of this action are very simple. The Crown's finances improve massively 
due to the funding that comes from the dissolution of the monasteries. That money would not have been available if Henry had not stepped up his campaign against the monasteries in the wake of the Pilgrimage of Grace. Henry uses this money to build up his army and especially the navy, for example the Mary Rolls, which is a very famous example of him building an enormous warship. Henry becomes more and more and more convinced because of the pilgrimage of grace that he must have absolute control over all people and all institutions in the kingdom. He consolidates his hold on the North with a Council of the North, which is something akin to the Parliament they asked for, but is very much stuffed with his men. As part of the Council of the North, he increases the power of the loyal families in the North, specifically, of course, the loyal Protestant families. I'd just like you to remember that because that's going to become important when we look at our next topic. There were no more rebellions in Henry's reign. People had learned the lesson of the pilgrimage of grace very, very well indeed. And as for Cromwell, well, in July 1540, Thomas Cromwell was executed. His failure, in Henry's view, was the same as his original success. Henry had originally fallen in love with Cromwell because Cromwell had arranged the marriage that he wanted. When that marriage to Anne Boleyn didn't present him with the son that he wanted, and he tired of her, he wanted another marriage. And Cromwell arranged that marriage. And this marriage was to a woman that Henry did not like, did not find attractive, did not particularly want to share his bed with. It was, however, a good Protestant match, which is what Cromwell was interested in. Henry blames Cromwell for this and has him executed. In later years, incidentally, he would regard the execution of Cromwell as one of his greatest mistakes and pretty much the only thing that he actually regretted. So, there you have it. The Pilgrimage of Grace fails as a challenge to royal authority, but its effect is to solidify royal authority, is to make the power of the king stronger, to make the power of the king more absolute. And this power of the monarch is going to stay the same throughout the rest of the early modern period. Mary will use this absolute power of the monarch in order to wrestle England back into the Catholic Church. And then, after her death, her sister Elizabeth will use that same power to bring England back into the Protestant Church and to start making England a global power. By the time she's replaced by James I, this idea of the monarch having enormous power, more power than any monarch has had since the days of John and Henry III, this idea has really taken root in the psyche, in the minds of the kings of England. And that is going to lead into our next topic. But in the meantime, for the pilgrimage of Christ, key things you need to remember. It's caused by economic, political and religious reasons. It is huge and it is fast and it is ultimately a failure. But its consequences are to strengthen the power of the king. There are a number of ways in which it is similar to the Peasants' Revolt and there are a number of ways in which it is different. As we've already discussed, this is conservative. The Peasants' Revolt was radical. But both of them 
had the effect in the short term of strengthening the power of the crown. Now where will that go next? We'll see. Thank you very much for listening. Good luck in your exams. Thank you.